Well, this week in the sermon series on the Shorter Catechism, we're carrying on in the commandment section now. We're at question 73, which brings us to the Eighth Commandment. So this is kind of a new, a new little section here for us. We'll have several sermons on the Eighth Commandment. And we'll begin, as we customarily do, with looking at this commandment in a summary way. So let's confess the answer to question 73 in the Catechism. In unison, I'll ask the question, and you respond. Question 73, which is the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment is, thou shalt not steal. This week, I want to do an introduction to it, showing you simply that God owns everything. Secondly, that he has appointed ownership for us. And thirdly, that as owner of all things, he distributes to us as he sees fit. Now, this is what I customarily introduce these things with this commandment. I think they're very important principles for us, and I hope you'll see that as we go on. These truths are all through the Bible, and one place that they are found very strongly set forth is in Psalm 104. And that will be our scripture reading today, Psalm 104. So please give your attention to the reading of God's word, Psalm 104, beginning in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At your voice, at the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you have founded for them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. He sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. The trees of the Lord are all full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted, where the birds make their nest, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats, the cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. He appointed the moon for seasons, the sun knows it's going down. You make darkness and it is night." in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. 
Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. The great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things, both great, both small and great. There, are the, sh- there the ships sail about. There is that Leviathan which you have made to play there. These all wait for you, that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, they are filled with good. You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are cursed. And you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be sweet to him. I will, I will be glad in the Lord. May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Indeed, bless the Lord, and may he add his blessing to his holy and infallible word. You can see how this psalm shows that God is the creator of all things, and how in his wisdom that he provides for all of his creatures, from the least to the greatest. Verses 10 through 13 speak of how he supplies water, to the beasts, and to the earth itself. Isn't it marvelous to think about? I said it in a prayer earlier that how the water goes everywhere that it needs to go. How does it get from the ocean up into the high mountains? God has devised ways for all that to happen. Verses 14 through 15 show how he provides all sorts of things for man. He causes grass to grow for the cattle that we eat. He causes vegetation to spring forth, crops and things like that, for the service of man. And what a great variety there is in these things that God has made. He even gives us wine to make us glad and things like oil to enhance our appearance. He gives us more than what is necessary merely to sustain biological life. God bestows gifts for no other purpose than to make us glad and attractive. There are things like steak and lobster, as well as things like bread and water. There, are, there is gold and silver, as well as oxygen and dirt. All of these things are from God. Great variety, great goodness. God's goodness is seen all around us in the things that he has made, and that, are not, that, that he has made that are not at all necessary to sustain life, but only for pleasure and beauty. From this, we have the biblical warrant for art, for things like cooking and painting and architecture and music. God shows his love to us by giving us things for pleasure and for comfort. And he calls us to show love to one another in using and bestowing these things on each other. We don't just live in a world of of necessity. We live in a world of abundance. 
and delight. For this reason, Jesus commended the woman who used the expensive ointment to anoint him before his death as an expression of love. It was Judas and other of his disciples who especially opposed this deed. In Deuteronomy, God calls his people to have pleasant feasts, which involve preparing food and drink that is to be enjoyed. Those who, in a pretended display of spirituality, forbid such things are promoting doctrines of demons, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 3, he says that these teachers are guilty of 1 Timothy 4, 3, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. It's like God gives his children a, a lollipop and then these teachers come along and slap it out of the hand and say, you can't have that. You can't have that. And they, they, they remove it from you. He adds the reason that it's so wrong in verse 4. 1 Timothy 4, 4. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. The eighth commandment calls us, therefore, to bestow wealth on each other. Not only necessities, but also things for pleasure and beauty as we are able. This is very much something that is built into us as human beings. God made us that way and it is good. We love beauty. That's good. And we love to show, we, we show love to each other by giving nice things to each other, performing for each other, making meals for each other, making clothes or furniture for each other, an endless variety. Psalm 104 goes on to speak of how God provides homes for various animals as, that, that he has made. He talks about that in verse 16 through 18. He cares for each one in this way. We're, we are to care for each other in this way. Surely everyone would agree that a parent ought to provide a dwelling place for his child, as we see God in Psalm 104 provides dwelling places for all the animals and the birds and such things. Verse 19 through 23 explain how God has ordained means by which each creature will gather its food. There are the beasts of the forest who hunt by night. There are the lions who roar after their prey. There is man who labors by day. There is a kind of labor by which each acquires wealth, the things that they need. All of God's creatures do not obtain their living in the same way. Jesus speaks of the birds, which in contrast with men, do not store up their food as we do. And he speaks of the flowers, which wear beautiful clothes from God, but do not toil or spin or, or sew to make those clothes. God has his way to provide for each creature. And for us, it is primarily through labor. The things that we bring forth by labor are the gifts of God, are the gifts for us, are all gifts for us from God. In other words, when you, when you make something by labor, it's a gift from God. But the way that he has humans to receive those things is largely through their labor, rather than like the flowers, that just, they just have beautiful clothes. They, they, didn't, they didn't have to labor for that. When Jesus says that we should not be concerned about what we wear because God clothes the flowers, 
He is not suggesting that we should all go naked until God puts clothes on us the same way he puts clothes on flowers. We're not flowers. We don't get our clothes that way. He has another way for us. Jesus' point is that we should not worry because our Father in heaven who provides for the flowers without their labor, clothes for the flowers without their labor, will provide for us through industry and labor. We obtain our clothing in one way and the flowers obtain theirs in another. But in both cases, it is God who provides. Therefore, we ought to trust him. If he clothes the flowers when they don't even toil, how much more will he clothe us who are more important than flowers when we do toil? What a glorious variety God has put into the creation. You know, just just think of the variety that he's given to us. We, we have photography, music, literature, poetry, knitting, cooking, decorating, painting, sculpture, development of technology, drama, sewing, carpentry, glass blowing, working with leather, printing, brewing, cosmetology, ballet, baseball, tennis, swimming, mountain climbing, hockey, scuba diving, stamp collecting, basket weaving, blacksmithing. We could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. This is what God has done. The list is endless. Surely we can all agree with the exclamation given in verse 34. I'm I'm sorry, verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. Notice in particular that last phrase. The earth is full of of whose possessions? Your, God's possessions. All of these things belong to God. That is foundational to a right understanding of the Eighth Commandment. That was a long introduction from Psalm 104. But let's come to our first point with that. Okay, as we begin this week to look at the Eighth Commandment, I want you to understand, first of all, that God is the owner of all things. The scripture affirms this repeatedly. Abraham very appropriately calls him, Genesis 14, 22, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He recognized that God was the owner of everything in heaven and earth and so can do whatever he wants with them. Interestingly, the context of this passage is Genesis 14, where Abraham is refusing to take any reward from the king of Sodom, lest the king of Sodom should suppose that he is the one who made Abram rich. Genesis 14, 22 says, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord. In other words, I've made a vow to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread of a sandal strap and that I from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. He wanted to be sure that the king of Sodom knew that God, the owner of all things, was the one who prospered him. He wanted him to know that God is the owner of all things and gives it to whom he will. 
As believers, it is right for us to demonstrate that we believe that too. That we're not always complaining that we lack, but instead are greatly rejoicing in what we have, even if it is only a morsel of bread. It is all His, and He is kind enough to share whatever He shares with us. Another passage that shows that God owns all things is Romans eleven thirty six. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. God is the owner of all things and all things exist for his purposes. Nothing has an independent reason for existence. Nothing does. It is here for God. It is all of God. It comes from God and through God and it is all to God. Proverbs 16 says that even the wicked were made for the day of judgment. Likewise, Psalm 24 affirms that God is the owner of all when it opens with the words, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. It is all his. So you see that all through scripture we are told this. There is a truth that follows from this. As the owner of all things, God has authority over all our possessions. That means that he has the right to give or to take away from us. He is not under the eighth commandment as our equal. God is not under the eighth commandment with us. It is his rule for us, his creatures. He's not under it as if we have things that belong to us and he has things that belong to him and that we aren't to mess with each other's things. He owns it all. And so he has a right to give it to us for a while and then to take it away for a while. He can do what he wants because it is all his. There is no wrong in him if he takes away everything you own because he is God and it is all his in the first place. Psalm 104, 27 through 30 speaks of this. It says of all his creatures, Psalm 104, 27, these all wait for you that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, and they are filled with good. You hide your face, and they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Even breath, we don't have as our own. It's not the breath is mine, and that's God's. No, the breath that God gives us is His too. He can give it to us, or He can take it away. Job understood this and proved that he understood it in the hour when all his great wealth was taken away. His words are very memorable. Job 1, 21 through 22. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. He didn't say to God, it was wrong for you to take away these things from me. Job is very right here. There is no getting around it. You had nothing to do with the fact that there are chicken sandwiches and sunsets and paintings in the world. You had nothing to do with that. You did not bring them forth. That you even have a mouth that you eat things with. God could have made it where you stand on the ground with bare feet and suck nutrients out of the soil instead of eating with, with your mouth. We have chicken sandwiches because God made chickens and because God made mouths to eat chicken, chicken sandwiches. 
and skill to put them together. They were all put here by the will of your creator who made you with the ability to enjoy them. You brought nothing with you in this world. You planned none of this. You came into the world naked and everything that you have came from God. Job understood that he, Job, had no right to claim anything as his own. It was all God's. God has all authority over your possessions. Now, if you refuse to accept the fact that God owns everything, you do not stand rightly related to your possessions or to anyone else's. You are not truly thankful for all that he has given you if you don't acknowledge that. And you do not accept his right to take everything away from you if he chooses. You think it is yours. And there is something else that follows from this. As the owner of all things, God also has a right to tell you what to do with your possessions. It is his right to tell you how they are to be used, how they are to be enjoyed, and how they are to be cared for. You are not at liberty to mindlessly destroy things even if God has given them to you. Nor do you have the authority to hold on to something when God tells you to give it away. You must remember that it is first God's and then yours. You are a steward of all that, he, that, that you have been given. In other words, it's someone else's property that you look after. It is God's. In the final analysis, it does not belong to you but to him. And you're called to manage it for him and to use it in accordance with his will. Your first and highest goal, as far as all of your possessions, should be to use them in the ways that please your master who owns them and gave them to you, and to understand what those ways are that would please him from his holy word. What, how has he instructed me to use what I have? And then use it that way. This includes not only how you use your wealth, but also how you obtain it in the first place and how you preserve it after you've gotten it. God has appointed labor. He has also appointed tithing, providing for the widows as well as enjoying a feast or a piece of fine jewelry that you acquire. You cannot obey the eighth commandment until you first accept God's authority as possessor of all things. But you must also understand something else about ownership if you would keep the eighth commandment you must also understand that god has ordained a real ownership for us and that's what i want to look at next okay he owns everything but he has also ordained a real ownership for us as human beings can't understand the eighth commandment without understanding that psalm 115 verse 16 explains that god has given the whole earth to man It says, the heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. What he gives you is yours to possess for as long as he gives it to you. We can all understand this from everyday life. For example, if you work for someone in an office, you are given a desk and you call it my desk. But if you no longer work there, or if the owner decides to give the desk to someone else and provide you with another one, you recognize that the desk is really ultimately his desk. And your empl- it's your employer's desk. 
though as long as you have it given to you for your use, you call it my desk. In no way does God, God giving us the earth deny him to be the ultimate owner. So when I say that you have been given ownership, it does not negate his ownership at all. We do not even have a co-ownership with God as if we were equals and could negotiate about what we're going to do with the property. But we have a secondary kind of ownership as servants who have been given things to use as like the desk to use for as long as they're provided to us. At the highest level, it is God's. But with reference to other creatures, the earth belongs to us. As human beings, it does not belong to the beasts or to the trees. Now, when God first made man, he put all the creatures under man and he commanded him to fill the earth and subdue it. Psalm 8 refers to this when it says of man. So man's in a unique place as the one that he has given the earth to. Psalm 8 verse 5 You have made him, man, a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. Understanding this helps to clear up a lot of present-day confusion about our relationship with the environment a lot of confusion about that first it counters the environmental extremists they claim that the animals and trees have an equal right to the earth with man that is why they are happy to do things for the environment even if it's destructive to human life Some of them deny the fact that God has given us even authority to kill animals for food and clothing and for comfort, like to make leather goods or a fur coat or something like that. They deny the uniqueness of man as the master of the earth who can bring forth animals and kind of harvest them to to use for, for food or for clothing or things like that. Many times they actually, these environmentalists actually become worshipers of the animals and plants and of the earth itself. And that is the absurd lengths to which this idolatry goes. When you don't see God as the owner who has given man an ownership and responsibility and dominion of the earth, then you you begin to worship the creation instead the creature instead of the, the creator. They want to sacrifice man for the earth because the earth has become their God. So we have to die so that the world can be better in their eyes. We, we give ourselves up. Secondly, understanding that God has given the earth to us to manage also counters laziness. Fallen societies often become very lazy. They are not productive because they don't see that they have been given dominion to manage the earth. Rather than planting gardens and building houses, they roam around in the woods eating what they can find and often stealing from other people. The land that could easily support them if they cultivated it is unable to support them because of their laziness. One of the things that missionaries have to do is to teach those they minister the gospel to how to work, how to be productive and labor. 
This, is, this has been done with so much success that even relief workers in Africa who are not believers have acknowledged that the only people that have success in training people who are lazy and who are not productive and don't work to work are the Christian missionaries because they change the people's hearts so that they understand the relationship of the earth to them and before God and they become productive and labor to have to give to one another and to bring glory to God. The often opposed seal hunt is in itself a proper thing to do. At least it's proper in principle. We could argue about whether it's done in a wise way and whether everything about it is right. I'm not talking about that, but in principle overall, uh, because the, the, uh, it's a managerial function. If the seal population is not controlled, there's going to be a great shortage of fish. And so we have a management. We do the same thing sometimes with, with deer. If they start to multiply, send the hunters out. Let's, let's quell the population because it's taking everything over. Sometimes we don't manage wisely, but we're given responsibility to do so in any case. And just leaving it to go as it will is not what God has appointed for us. Thirdly, understanding that God has given the earth to us to manage counters the abuse of the earth. We're to exercise the management that God has given to us for his glory, always remembering that everything belongs to him. You do not have the right to use the desk that your employer issues to you for firewood, for example. You say, it's my desk. I want to use it for firewood. He's not going to be pleased with you. Or I'm going to take it home and I'm going to put it in my own office and use it in my own office instead of using it at work. He gave it to you to use at work. In the same way, no one has a right to go out and take all the fish without regard to the next generation. But we do have a right to fish in a responsible way because God has given us fish for food. Greed often drives businesses and individuals to abuse the resources that God has given to us because they're not thinking about God and their neighbor. They're just thinking about what they can get out of the use of this thing, not thinking about the future. There is also a contemptuous abuse of God's gracious gifts. There are those who torture animals for recreation and sport or engage in practices that are inhumane when they're not at all necessary. Such persons do not acknowledge the ownership of God. The Lord commands us to be kind to birds. He cares for them and he tells us to do so. The Jews say that the least of all the commandments is Deuteronomy 22.6. It says, if a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, with the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. The Lord even orders us to use discretion in time of war as far as what we destroy. In Deuteronomy twenty nineteen through 20, it says, When you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them if you can eat of them, the kind of trees that you can eat fruit from. Do not cut them down to use in the siege for the tree of the field is man's food. Only the trees which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it is subdued. 
And so you see that God has given us ownership in the earth in a general sense. Okay, that's what we've been talking about. That as human, as mankind, we have in a general way an ownership in the earth that God has bestowed on us. It is ours to manage and to subdue for our neighbor and for ourselves to the glory of God. Ownership is given to us in distinction from being given to the animals. But there is not only a general ownership, and this is where you really get down to important things with the Eighth Commandment. Well, all of this is related to the Eighth Commandment. But um, there is also private ownership. There's general ownership, and then there's private ownership that must be recognized before we can understand how to obey the Eighth Commandment. By private ownership, I mean that God has ordained that one person should own one thing and that another person should own another thing. He has not called us to have all things in common as a human race, but to possess certain things in distinction from others so that we can say, this is mine and that is yours. Little children even learn that from their very young age. This is not just a social convention that men that man has come up with, it's a divine ordinance of God, the, the ordinance of private property ownership. This is brought out clearly in Scripture. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 3.12, it says, now those who are such, talking about people, that, he was just talking about people that were able to work but were not working. They were busybodies. They were not laboring when they were quite capable of doing so. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat what? Do you remember what it says? Eat their own bread. If they're eating bread when they haven't labored for it, they're eating other people's bread, unless they aren't able to work. But if they're able to work and they're not, they're eating. Clearly, this is, there is then such a thing as your own bread that is not somebody else's bread. And there's somebody else's bread that is not your bread. God wants that distinction to be maintained. The fact that the early church had all things in common does not contradict this. They shared what they had because there were needs among them, tremendous needs because of persecution. The first converts, of course, were Jews. And they were being persecuted by their fellow Jews for accepting Jesus Christ. They were put out of the synagogue, which meant that no one would give them a job or let them continue to work for them. If you were working for someone, you got put out of the synagogue, you were out of work. If they had a, a business, they, if you had a business, if the, the Christian who had a business, this business would be boycotted by the mass of unbelieving Jews. To meet the needs then that were prevalent in the Christian community in the, in the early church, those who had houses and lands willingly sold them and gave the proceeds to those among them who lacked. But this was in no way a denial of private ownership or, or a suggestion that there should be no such thing as private ownership among them. It was rather a willingness to share of what one had for those who had not. In Acts 5, this is brought out very clearly in the account of Ananias and Sapphira. We're told how Ananias and Sapphira sold land and pretended to give the entire amount to the needy. They, were, they saw um, Barnabas and how he had sold lands and things, and they thought, and everybody was kind of, you know, looking at 
<laughs> Barnabas is the, the fairest among women, the bride of Christ that was doing what was beautiful. And they said, oh, we need to do that too. And, uh, but then uh, they didn't really have a heart for it. We we're told that um, by prophetic insight, Peter recognized that they had sold the land and pretended to give the entire amount to the needy, but had only given a part of the proceeds. So by prophetic insight, Peter, Peter knew that they had lied, keeping back part, and that they were trying to make a show of generosity, but were in fact telling lies. Now, for our purposes, I want you to look at what Peter says to them, though, about ownership when he rebukes them. He tells them on no uncertain terms that the land belonged to them to do whatever they wanted with it to start. They could have done whatever they wanted. He makes it clear that even in this time of crisis, private ownership still continues. He says, 5-4, Acts 5-4, while it, the property remained, was it not your own. It wasn't somebody else's, it was your own. And after it was sold, was it not in your own control to do what you wanted with the money? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Both the property and the money from the sale belonged to them, and they had the power to do whatever they wanted with it. It was their possession and not another's. The problem was not that they did not give it all, but that they claimed to have given it all when they didn't. They lied in the church. It would have been perfectly legitimate for them to have only given a part because it was theirs to do what they pleased with, but with it. But they lied. This is consistent with what we see elsewhere in Acts. In Acts 12, when Peter is freed from prison, where does he go? He goes to the house of Mary, John Mark's mother. This shows that she did not sell her house. Her house was a place where the church gathered, and it was apparently a very big house. It would have had probably a big courtyard where the church would be able to gather as they did in the, the large houses, and, and uh, they, there were many believers who gathered there. We note also that she had servants that a servant girl went to answer the door. In a big house, there would be servants. She didn't sell her house and give up everything. And the church used it. The apostles used it. They didn't say, why don't you sell your house like, like uh, Barnabas sold his property? Why don't you sell your house? Why are you holding on to that? No, obviously there is no condemnation of her for keeping a house that was much bigger than she needed. But you see, she used her house for the glory of God. So you see that there is such a thing as private ownership. This is important to understand for three reasons as far as Eighth Commandment is concerned. First, if there is no such thing as private property, then there is no such thing as stealing. How could you steal? If there is no ownership, then your car is no more yours than it is mine or anybody else's. And so I have just as much right to drive it as you do. I can't steal it because it's mine just as much as it's yours. Yet the Bible says a great deal about stealing, and it forbids stealing. Both Testaments, expressly in the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. And again, in Ephesians 4.28 in the New Testament, let him that stole steal no longer. Second, it's important to understand, just as no private ownership would make stealing impossible, it would also make giving impossible. 
If what I have is already yours just as much as it's mine, I can't give it to you. Yet the Bible says a great deal about giving to others, and it commends giving. Giving of our possessions is a way that God has appointed for us to show love to one another and to him. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Let each of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Third, just as no private ownership means no stealing and no giving, it also means no responsibility. If the car I mentioned before is common property, who is responsible to change the oil or to replace the tires when they wear out? And even worse, if I can walk into the store and get whatever I want, what will restrain me from always getting the best of whatever is there and leaving nothing for anyone else? And on the opposite side of things, who would bother to produce anything for me if there was nothing in it for them? In an unfallen world, maybe they would, but not in this world. Certainly in this fallen world, it would never happen. Most people in our society try to live above their means and, do, and to do only as much work as they need to to get by. Few are willing to work very hard, if at all, without pay, unless they have to. But you see, God has ordained, as stated in 2 Thessalonians 3.12, that we should each work in quietness and eat our own bread. He has even said in verse 10, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, that if a man won't work, neither shall he eat. We are definitely called to give to those who cannot work, who have true need, but God does not want us to give to those who can work, but won't. The government is wrong when they do this. In his wisdom, he has given each one his own work to do and his own food to eat. So the eighth commandment involves respecting the order that God has established in making us owners. It involves recognizing their possessions, being responsible for my own possessions, and giving possessions to others. So, from what we have seen today, we may establish a principle. This is our third point here, namely that God owns everything, yet he distributes to each person as he sees fit. Since this is so, God has entrusted us with ownership. The eighth commandment requires us to obtain wealth in a lawful way for ourselves and for our neighbor, and it forbids hindering our own or our neighbor's wealth, or depriving him of service that we ought to render to him, such as service that we have contracted. This is how we honor God with our possessions, recognizing that he is the one who gave them to us and that they are to be used for his glory. Now, do you accept what we have seen today? Examine yourself. Do you accept these things? Say, well, yeah, they all make sense. But do you accept them? Do you acknowledge God as the owner of all that you have, but also that you own it? Do you acknowledge this with your words? Do you tell others that and remind yourself that it all belongs to God? Sometimes it's important to say the actual words. Psalm 24:1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Or Job, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I sh- shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You need to say that. 
You need to say this to your spouse when you're making financial decisions. We need to remember it all belongs to the Lord. You must remind each other that you live in God's house and that you drive God's car and that you spend God's money. You need to say this with thanksgiving when you get something new. God has given us this. Let's give thanks to him. And you need to say this when you lose something that, is, that was precious to you. The Lord has taken this away. So do you acknowledge God's ownership with your words? That's the first thing. Do you say that he owns everything? And secondly, do you acknowledge his ownership with your actions? Do you work for others with the mindset that your labor belongs to God? That you are God's servant? That you ought to do your work with an eye to pleasing him? That you ought to do it with integrity and honesty? Do you acknowledge his ownership by tithing? If he says to give 10%, He does. Do you give your 10%? Do you try to acquire what is beyond your means, going on a vacation that you can't pay for before you've got the money for it? Do you respect what he has given to others and take care of their property? Or do you say, well, it's not mine, so you don't take, you rent a car, you don't take care of it? Do you take good care of your own things, even? They belong to God, ultimately. Do you cheat other people? Do you cheat on your taxes? Are you wasteful with God's gifts? It doesn't mean that we need to be weird and extreme about not being wasteful, but it means that we shouldn't just be careless with things as if they have no value that God has given to us. It is all too easy to fall into a very selfish, independent mindset about our possessions. It's liberating to remember that everything belongs to God. Jesus Christ demonstrated this when he left the glories of heaven to do the Father's will. As a son, he respected his Father's ownership of all things and was willing to leave them all when the Father called him to do so. For our sakes, he became poor that he might make us rich. He left the glories of heaven. Now he has inherited all things and he shares his inheritance with us. Remember what we have seen all along with each of the commandments. If you love God when it comes to the commandments, you will want to apply his commandments to as much of your life as you can, to all that you, in all the ways that you can, rather than looking for loopholes as if the commandments are bad things that you're trying to get around. That's not how it is. That's not how it is with God. God is a gracious God. You're not trying to dodge the commandments. You're trying to embrace them, to get them into your life. And and when you see the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ leaving all his riches for us, surely it will make you willing to hold all your possessions for the glory of God rather than in a selfish way. Over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at three particular applications that grow out of the principle that God owns everything yet distributes to us as he sees fit. First, we will consider that because God owns everything and distributes to us as he sees fit, you must respect the property of your neighbor. God has given it to him. In this, we will see that we should not steal or do anything to hinder our neighbor's wealth or to harm his possessions, neither his nor our own. Second, we will consider that because God owns everything and distributes to us as he sees fit, you ought to partake joyfully of that which he has entrusted to you. In this, we will look at contentment. We will look at cheerfulness and labor. 
we will look at proper enjoyment and use of our possessions, and even at how we should receive the the good things of life, the things that are even luxuries and such when God has given them to us with thanksgiving. And thirdly, we will consider that because God owns everything and distributes to man through means of man, that you must be willing to distribute your portion to others according to his will. In this, we will look at how we ought to give generously to others. In closing, I want to warn you about how dehumanizing it is to violate or disregard this commandment. We saw this to be the case with sexual sin when we studied the seventh commandment, didn't we? Sex is a beautiful thing when it is kept in its proper place in marriage. But if we begin to make an idol of it, if we begin to have sex polluted, then we begin to defile ourselves. And we, I'm sorry, we begin to define ourselves by sex. That starts to be how we, we see ourselves. Every, everything is seen in relation to this idol as a potential sex partner. We look at ourselves from this perspective. How attractive are we? How good are we at this sexual business? How, how desirable are we to others? We become less and less like the image of God and more and more like a beast that perishes. The very same thing is true when we make possessions to be our idol. Then we define ourselves by possessions. We look at others not as people, but as potential clients or potential servants or potential competitors in business. Everything is defined by how it affects our wealth. We're dehumanized. We become less and less the image of God and more and more the empty shell of a person who is consumed with things. It's a terrible way to live. It's a terrible way to be. We become, again, not human, not the image of God anymore. Like Amnon did, he didn't care about Tamar. He only cared about satisfying his own sexual desires. So we become with wealth. It's terrible because we have a creator in heaven who is love. And he has come into the world to redeem sinners and to give them life in which they come to delight in giving to others and in serving others for his glory. That's how we are restored, to be givers like God is a giver. By his redeeming grace, we become more and more like the one that we worship. What a change this is. What freedom from bondage. What fulfillment of what it is to be human, to be like our Savior who loved us and gave himself for others, for us. He cares for other people because he's a true man. Our goal is to learn to live in him. If we come to him, he pardons us for our miserable, selfish failings. And he gives us new life in himself through the Holy Spirit. And we become givers instead of thieves, just like he is. And this is what we will be in eternity as his worshipers. We will, like, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Please stand and let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you as the possessor of heaven and earth. We thank you, Lord, for how you have bestowed on us 
so many wonderful things that you have put in the earth that we're able to delight in, how that you have made such an abundance for us to enjoy as we saw in Psalm 104. And we praise you, O Lord, that you are the possessor of all things, that everything here is yours, for you made it. And you have given it to us, Lord. You have given the earth to us as, as human beings in general, and you've also given us individual things to possess. As individuals, you have given us particular things that we can say, this is mine and that is yours. And I pray, Lord, that we would learn to live in that, in that uh, economy that you have appointed, that you have ordained and established, that we would respect the property of our neighbor and that we would also take care of the things that you have given to us and that we would, be, uh, that, that we would not feel that we have been wronged when our possessions are taken away from us. May we know, Lord, that ultimately it all belongs to you. Please help us, Lord, to grow in our sense of regarding others when it comes to possessions, that we would use them in in the way that, that you want us to use them, in a way that brings glory to you. We know that we can be so greedy and selfish and we can become those who look at other people as either a potential client or a or a potential uh, competitor, or a potential servant for us to, to further, somehow that it always affects what we have or what we don't have in relation to them. We pray, Father, that you would deliver us from such an inhumane conception of, of the people around us. Indeed, Lord, it is not wrong for there to be economy, that there, is, that, that there are competitors, and there are servants, and there are clients. But, Father, Help us to go beyond that and to, and to see people as people and to treat them as such and to regard them and not to have our hearts set only on what we gain or what we lose as far as our material possessions. Father, we thank you that there is a right and non-idolatrous use of the good things that you have given us in this world. And we pray that we wouldn't go into that error that, that Paul talked about to Timothy, that that we forbid the, the enjoyment of, of good things. But we also pray that we wouldn't be consumed by the desire for having good things. Father, may it all be done to your glory, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, that we would do all to your glory. Please forgive us, Lord, for the way that we have transgressed with regard to the Eighth Commandment. Help us as we study these things to to grow and to engage with you, Lord, and to become more and more what you have called us to be. We pray that you would bless us richly, Lord, through looking at this commandment and how we can, how we can get it into our life, how we can get it, apply it so that, so that we are adorned with the, with the teaching of your word. Father, how we desire that, that we bring glory to you in the way that, that we handle and manage our wealth. We thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the hope that we have that he will work in us by his grace. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. The blessing of the Lord. And now, may the Lord supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Now Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.